Welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekport, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books news, reviews, and previews. You can buy their books, you can read their articles. For instance, you can read Curing the Postmodern Blues by Tom Shapira. <laughs> uh, Shout the, out. Be- the best book ever written about the filth by Grant Morrison and Chris Weston. And speaking of which, I am Tom Shapira. Hello, I'm Sean Edry. And welcome to... The Smorgasbord annual episode. We've only had nine episodes, but this is our special end-of-the-year annual, The Smorgies 2014. If Marvel can do it, so can we. Sure. What, what was it? It's Did our end-of-the-year summary where we <laughs> hand out arbitrary awards, and much like Whose Line Is It Anyway, the awards don't mean anything. They're just symbols of our judgment upon comics-dom. Yeah, let's kick it off with... When you look at 2014 overall, I think this really has been the year where women have been both like a subject of discussion but also a major like theme going forward and no no one is better than two men like us talking about oh, the God. subject theme yeah <laughs> we're turning into marvel's writing summit right now is we what are, we're doing we but we do want to give credit where it's due so let's start with the Tina Belcher award for best female character and I'm going to choose uh, Fatima from uh, Midas Flesh, written by Ryanoff, with art by uh, Brayden Lamb and Shelley Perlane. And we've talked about Midas Flesh last episode, actually, mm-hmm. the one before that. And what I liked about it, it was a character who was doing all of the wrong decisions, quote-unquote, within her story. But you understood why she was doing them, and she had strong moral undercurrent for why mm-hmm. she was doing it. And we don't see that enough. People who have the right moral opinion, but couldn't quite make it stick throughout their actions. Ryan North really goes out of his way to make sure that even though she's doing things that the reader is aware will not lead anywhere good, and in lesser writers' hands would make her unsympathetic, you can't help feeling for her. Like, she really is doing what she thinks is right, despite the fact that she's in a setting that does not necessarily reward doing the quote-unquote honorable thing, or the moral thing. Plus, she gets all the best lines. She really does. She, she really Hello, does. Death Satellites! My pick is Kamala Khan, otherwise known as Ms. Marvel, by uh, G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfana. And I brought up Ms. Marvel a few times in this podcast as an example of, like, you know, a great new character. And I think one of the reasons I find her so appealing is, similar to Fatima, it could have gone wrong so easily... When you look back at Marvel's past attempts to represent minorities, it hasn't always gone smoothly, right? When your first priority is to say, we need a Latina Spider-Girl, as opposed to, we need a Spider-Girl who's Latina, you get Aranya, who... she was kind of a Latin stereotype. And Kamala could have fallen into that trap very, very easily, because the first thing anybody knew about her was the fact that she was like, she's Muslim. Oh my god, she's Muslim. But G. Willow Wilson has figured it out. She has really made Kamala more than just sort of the stereotype. And when I was thinking about it, like in the context of 2014, you know, compare her to Dust from the X-Men, worlds apart, right? Despite the fact that they're both supposedly, you know, Muslim superpowered female characters, but Dust has always been sort of trapped by the stereotype of, you know, she wears this abaya and it doesn't really look right. And, and Kamala's ethnicity 
is part of her personality. It's part of the way she sees and interacts with the world, but it's not all that she is. Yeah, Marvel have a stab every couple of years of trying to redo Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man was Spider-Man in the 60s, and you had they were trying to do it with Nova in the 70s mm-hmm. and Dark Oak in the 90s, and most of them don't quite stick the landing. Kamala Khan does. She's the teenage superhero of her generation. Mm-hmm. She represents her generation. Very well, I might yeah. add. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of mileage in positioning her as, within the context of Wilson's story, I don't know if this is Marvel's policy, but she seems to be positioned as a sort of next generation hero. We have seen Marvel attempt these before with the Runaways, with the Young Avengers. It hasn't worked so well, far. Well, it, it's the problem of the shared universe where you can't really have the next generation heroes because if you yeah. do, it means all the old heroes have to be obsolete. And it's Marvel, the new mutants paradigm. Yeah, right? and Marvel can never make Captain America slash Thor slash Iron Man obsolete. I mean, they can't make Spider-Man the old guy. Spider-Man always right. have to be 29 max. Which is unfortunate because, you know, I remember the uh, Tom DeFalco Spider-Girl yeah. got a lot of mileage out of the idea that, you know, Peter Parker was a retired superhero and his daughter was now... Well, that was the alternate universe thing. Yeah. And... I just think that, like, if that's the direction they're taking this character, then I see a lot of good things in her future and I'm on board for it. So, we've done the best female character. Uh, our next award is the Omar Little Award for best male character of the year. <laughs> Modoc. <laughs> the mental organism designed only for killing, who appeared throughout this year mostly in Secret Avengers by mm-hmm. Alice Scott and Michael Welsh. Modoc, as a rule, is a great character in design, in name, in his exaggerated everything. <laughs> it's, it's true. Just, it's such a classic superhero, throw everything, plus the kitchen sink, plus what's beneath the kitchen sink, and you know, make it stick. You mm-hmm. could never have such a character in any other genre but superheroes, and that's what makes him great. Mm-hmm. And in this year, we saw a different side of Modoc. you know. Uh, <laughs> not not Modoc as a conquering villain, not Modoc as a comic character, because, you know, Modoc well, can be... Well, Modoc in love. Modoc in love. Modoc in love. And, <laughs> and it, in love with... And, it, and it's both funny and touching. It is. It is. He, I mean, Modoc tends to come off before Alice Scott, right? Yeah. Before he was uh, in Secret Avengers, he tended to be a joke character yeah. at this point because he, he really does originate with sort of like the 60s and 70s where you had It's more a of very Jack Kirby thing. That it's only a giant was... head in a chair, right? Yeah. With these tiny little arms and tiny little legs. And I think really like Code is taking him in, in a different direction and that makes him very interesting yeah. for I think the first time because... No, no. He's never been like the kind of character to do that. Modok is amazing. I'm going to have to go with Loki, agent of Asgard. I should By say. the way, no, it's three Marvel characters. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. We'll, we'll get to the rough stuff in a bit. Okay. Uh, so Loki, agent of Asgard. This is Al Ewing and Lee Garbit. I think we have to acknowledge that Loki can be a very difficult challenge for writers, especially after Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. He's meant to be a schemer, but you can't really go into the mind of a schemer because then it spoils his plan. We as readers have to like experience his plan as it's happening. But I think Al Ewing figured it out in a way that Gillen didn't last year because Gillen went too far with Loki being the sort of constantly shifting and you have no idea what's going on with him and maybe he's this and maybe he's that. And Ewing's version 
in my opinion, is really the best version of this character I've seen. He's witty, he's tricky, he's morally ambivalent, but not enough to alienate the reader. He's written so well that I was genuinely bothered by the fact that I had to drop the book. Like the crossover it, scourge. Yeah, it's absurd when I say it. I canceled this book for every reason other than the writer, the artist, and the character. <laughs> and Which nor- in Marvel case means nothing. Yeah. Absolutely I, it's, nothing. It's absurd. We talked about this when we reviewed the first trade. Usually I don't have a problem dropping books. I'm completely okay with having like, you know, stopping cold turkey, having a clean break. This book pained me to drop it because I really, really did think that Loki was at his best under Ewing. And if it hadn't been for Original Sin and uh, Axis and Sixes and the return well, of the Unfathomable... It's Marvel, so you know there's going to be a relaunch. You know, number one, well, okay. pretty soon. Yeah, how long until that ties into things that we don't want to talk about? <laughs> but anyway, that would be my pick for uh, Best Male Character of the Year. Okay, and to our double-sided coin, there's a third side. Yes. The nasty side. We're giving also the James Howlett Logan Award for Most Overexposed Character. The Memorial Award. May he rest in peace for the next 20 minutes. Most Overexposed Character. Which, surely, also Marvel has to be Deadpool, (laughs) who appeared in Double Shipping Monthly Series, Mm -hmm. a new one-shot every month, an annual, a biannual, a weekly miniseries, another weekly miniseries, and... Another crossover run and an omnibus and... Oh, and guest appearances all over the place. And the joke has been worn yeah. thin. The joke is, he's wacky! You know, I like him. I find him in funny. In small doses. Not even in... I mean, listen, I read the Joe Kelly run back in the day and, and I... No, but the Joe Kelly run was, was completely consistent. different. From the modern Deadpool, the Den- the post Daniel Way Deadpool, which is basically Bugs Bunny yeah. in the Marvel universe, is very different from the Joe Kelly dark humor thing. Well, Kelly, I mean, I mean Kelly was subtle compared to what we're seeing yeah, here. Oh yeah. yes, yes. I mean <laughs> that goes without saying. I enjoy Deadpool's humor when it's done properly. I mean, I agree with you that he's just everywhere right now, and it's a bit much. But my pick for most overexposed character or I should say characters, would have to be the Guardians of the Galaxy. Look, I the like... The movie came out I like the movie. I love the movie. Scotty Young's Rocket Raccoon ongoing is, awesome. is entertaining in its own way. I'm considering checking out Nicole Perlman's Gamora, because I am interested in how she sees the character. But in no way do I feel that we need the Guardians separately or together shoved down my throat. One ongoing with Bendis, fine. Two ongoings with Bendis... I don't know. Star-Lord solo title, eh, team-up crossover with X-Men, stop! Just stop! It's textbook overexposure, and with Deadpool also. Marvel has been at this for 50-something years now, you would think that they would know by now. Even from a purely business marketing, the numbers, money perspective, without any nod at all to creativity. Overexposure is bad for your characters. Well, we're constantly talking about, you know, how editors control, but I think who's really controlling Marvel is the guys at, uh, you Probably. know... Probably. You know, the, the, the offices crunching the bills, like, Deadpool sells, produce us another Deadpool, post-haste. You, you see, that's exactly what I don't understand. The about accounting models. But even accountants would be like, 
you can prove with numbers, with graphs, that an overexposed character will become less and less appealing over time. Look at Venom. You remember Venom in the 90s, right? But you're thinking long-term. He was long- everywhere. But you're thinking long-term. Think Shouldn't about, accountants think be ab- thinking long-term? No, think about the quarterly review and the bonus will get if your numbers will go high for this quarter. And next year, you may be off to the Bahamas so you don't care. <laughs> I just think it's You think really like a reasonable person, which is your mistake. <laughs> and that's why I, you don't run a comic book company. Thank God. And, and a millionaire. Oh, my God. I just think that the overexposure strategy has been proven to fail <laughs> on enough occasions that it should be law by now. Like, you should know. Oh, yeah. Back to the good stuff. Back to the good stuff. Wash, you know. Moving away from characters and into the people in the comics industry... Let's start with the Wilson Taylor Award for Best Writer of 2014. It has to be Alice Cobb, who mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, shattered everything that I finally knew about uh, sequential comic with Zero last year. Yep. And Zero is still ongoing and still great. And this year he added Secret Avengers, which was both similar because it's super-powered secret agents doing, you know, conspiracy stuff, mm-hmm. but was also completely different because Zero is very serious and very yes. dour and very, very, you know, this is the awful secrets of the world. Mm-hmm. And Secret Avengers does all that as a comedy thing. Yeah. It's the only comics a lot right now that has a talking bomb with existential <laughs> tendencies as a, as a part of the group. And it's not like, you know, a bomb that moves. He's just sitting there giving yeah. advice. Really? A nice Hannibal Lecter with atomic problems. The amazing thing with him is that he's so flexible as a writer. Because you said it, like, Zero really comes off as sort of this science fiction high concept, constantly jumping back and forth through time, and yet you also have these very interesting and appealing characters so it's not just, you know, high concepts coming at you and it's you don't know what's happening. It's Science Fiction 24 if you understood that the heroes were bastards. Yeah, and he's grounded at the same time because you get invested in Edward's relationships mm-hmm. with the people around him and Roman's story and all of these uh, subplots that are intersecting and it's really complex. And then he does something like Secret Avengers, which has a lot of the high concept material, but also has things like what we just mentioned, you know, yeah. Modoc being this hysterically funny. And he also does Bucky Barnes Winter Soldier, which is another interesting series. I just didn't really like the art for that one, which was for me the almost, art. Yeah, it, it it tried too much. It wasn't the case of under art; it was over art. It was the yeah. artist pulling out all stops and saying, "I'm creative. I'm unique. I'm special. Look at what I do." And I'm like. Can you just tell a story, please? Yeah. It's a bit much, the art, but the story... What what happened on that page? I do not know. (laughs) I do not care. But in God's credit, not a lot of people have done post-Winter Soldier Bucky Barnes really well. Yeah, because he's he's an Ed Brubaker character. You know, Locke, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. All that said, Mm -hmm. my pick for Best Writer of 2014 is James Tinian IV who wrote The Woods, Mimetic, The Eighth Seal for Thrillbent. Now, I'll preface this by saying that there are writers I hold in higher esteem in the sense that they have the bibliography to back their talents up, by which I'm referring, of course, to Brian Vaughn, Ed Brubaker, Scott Snyder, and, of course, Alice Scott as well. But I want to use this award to highlight someone who hasn't reached that level of exposure but has the raw talent to back it up, and that's James Tinian. He doesn't have a huge back catalog. We reviewed the first trade of, uh, of, the, of the Woods. He did Batman Eternal, which I didn't read. I'm not here for It's okay, for but yeah. the thing with this is you don't know which part was 
his hand in which part was just somebody. Scott Snyder. Yeah, Scott they're Snyder. They're co-writing it. I don't know. I'm, I'm staying away from that whole thing. His three-issue miniseries, Mimetic, was also for Boom. And webcomic, The Eighth Seal, is for Thrill Bent, which sadly isn't as regular as it should be. We, we've talked about that. The thing that I enjoy about Tinian, what makes him really the writer of the year for me, is not just the fact that he can craft these really compelling characters, because that's always a plus, no matter what genre you're writing. But he's one of the few writers in the industry who is able to surprise me. Because I said in The Woods, like, the thing that drove me really, like, to become invested in The Woods wasn't necessarily the setup, was the fact that the story never takes the easy, predictable route. There's always some unexpected twist that makes perfect sense, but also defies your expectation. Because Tinian understands genre formula in a way that few writers do, and he knows exactly when to subvert it. And even fewer writers are capable of that. So what I get from his work consistently is that feeling of, aha, you know, you didn't see that coming, and yet look at how fresh the new angle seems. See, for me, he is a very promising writer, but until The Woods wraps up, I wouldn't know if he's Grant Morrison, young Grant Morrison, or young Nick Spencer. So I would say read Mimetic in that case. Mimetic is a three-issue miniseries. The third issue will be coming out this month. Even, like, from the first two, it still has that quality in the woods of you think that the story is going this way because you have been trained to think that because you've read similar stories. And he knows exactly where to put the tiniest twist that suddenly makes everything seem brand new. And, you know, in in an industry that has gotten by so often on repetition, there's a lot to be said for that sense of, wow, legitimately don't know what's coming. And I think that's great. Okay, and Best Artist? Yes, the, the Frank Quitely Award for, for Best Artist. And see, for most of the year, I thought my choice, I had two choices. Either Ulysses Farinas, mm-hmm. who did uh, Judge Red Mega City 2, yeah. and did recently throughout this year Captain Victory, which unfortunately is now long delayed. Mm, well. Thank you. <laughs> and, That's the reason I'm not going to give you the And the other pick storms. was perhaps the... Husband-wife team uh, Carrasco, the yes. French people who did Beautiful Darkness, which amazing graphic novel as far as I'm concerned, and beautiful artwork. And I thought, you know, it's going to be either this or that. And then Multiversity, Pax Americana came out with mm-hmm. the man himself, Frank Quietly, and 48 pages. That's all I read from him this year. 48 pages, which was more than enough. Seriously, the first 12 pages were more than enough for him to be the best artist of the year, and Pax Americana is just a masterclass in how to do comics and say what you will about the writing, whether you like Grant Morrison, whether you don't, whether you think what he's doing, you know, doing a parody of Watchmen in 48 pages is too much, if the metagags are annoying. We'll get to Grant Morrison. You'll get to that. (laughs) But what's Frank Quietly doing throughout that issue is legendary. It may be his best work ever, or closely tied to We Free, you know. Yeah. And Frank Wiley, at his worst day, is better than 99.99% of the artists. And this is him on his best day. Yeah, he, he has... And been. even his annoying faces are now down, you know? You know, I noticed that. Yeah. And it didn't even... It didn't sink in at first when yeah. I was reading the, the issue. Like, the clay... Something's different The clay here. faces are... You remember when he did The Authority with Mark Miller? Yeah. And everyone had like these really, really weird faces. Rude faces. <laughs> I was and it's a choice. It's his choice. It and is a stylistic... Is it a stylistic No, choice? he's not doing it because he's bad. Because 
Everybody has like that one tits. thing that they're not good at. For Rob Liefeld, it was feet. And, his, <laughs> and I love him to death, but in the past, when he was doing human characters, and again, that's why We Free is one yeah. of his best work, there was almost always a feeling of something sculptured out of clay in the way they stood and in the way they looked, mm-hmm. especially, again, quietly faces. Ex-Americana does that. That doesn't have better. that. And even if you ignore that, every single scene throughout that book the assassination done backwards the double spread that you can read in three different ways that takes place in three different times Mm -hmm. it's amazing it's Watchmen in one (laughs) issue all the stylistic tricks that Dave Gibbons had to have you know hundreds of pages to try and do his best Frank Whiteley is like yeah I I can do it in one tenth of your time of your page count I can do it and he can and he did it's amazing yes he is my pick for best artist this year is Michael Del Mundo. Now, I also had sort of a backup pick. I was going to go with Gus Storms from Egos. But since timeliness is an issue, I am giving it instead to Michael Del Mundo, who did Electra with W. Hayden Blackman. Well, first of all, rest in peace, Electra. You know, it was a great ongoing while it ran. We but shall miss you for the next reboot in four months. If time. it's the same creative team, I'm there. But the thing that I love about Del Mundo's artwork, specifically in this book, is that Electra is such an amorphous character, right? It's partly because of how Frank Miller created her and how other writers use her afterwards. It's really difficult to understand who she is, what her deal is, what she's doing at any given time. And Del Mundo's artwork is simultaneously super detailed in the sense that it's very elaborate and the poses are very specific and you see exactly where everyone's going, but there's this dreamlike quality to the painting that just makes it look absolutely stunning. Those double-page spreads in the first five issues are breathtaking. His designs for characters like that cannibal assassin and for Cape Crow, they're not super elaborate. That you instantly have this sort of connection to these characters. I just absolutely love it. And the more painted style always was a problem for me in comics because it was great for the single image, Mm -hmm. but always problematic in continuation, it always seemed like actors standing still in the middle of a shot instead of characters moving, but the Moon doesn't have that problem. No. I remember the very first issue, you have this double-page spread of Electra going through this sort of training routine. It just flows so well. And of course, she is a character who is defined by her physicality, right? She's the assassin. She's the person whose movements need to be fluid. And the Moon and... does what somebody who draws Electra needs to do, which is think through her action scene. Yeah. Modern action scenes in superhero comics, and it's weird because it's an action genre, are horrible most of the time. It's just yeah. people posing and there's a giant splash and then the next page is another splash and then somebody says, we won! And the other side says, we lost. Mundo thinks through the scene, thinks through the choreography of the fight, yeah. the locations, the, what people do with them. And that's a cue he took from Miller, who said, well, I'm doing a character who's a ninja. How she's going to fight, how she's going to move. That's a proper use of a character. Absolutely. Now that his ongoing is over, somebody better snatch him up. I don't know yeah. if it's Marvel, like another series, or Image. He should, he should do a bad title. He definitely should do Editors, a grab those Pokeballs and try and catch him because you know, <laughs> he's worth it. So our next award is the Proud Mary Award for the best new ongoing of 2014. Not a lot of competition for me. The choice was obvious since the magnificent first issue, which was actually issue zero, but I don't care. Transformers vs. G.I. Joe by Tom Scioli and John Barber from IDW. 
Now, IDW Transformers line in general is very strong. And I'm saying it not as a Transformers fan. I didn't grow up on the comic series. I watched the cartoon as a kid, as I guess all kids of my age did. But when people started talking about Transformers is great in IDW, I was like, nah, it's Transformers yeah. from IDW. It's probably just... There's a lot of skepticism that comes but with that description. I've, I've read their stuff, and it was great. It was brilliant. Science fiction, space opera thing, you know, big ideas, big character arcs, daring do's. And then they announced this thing. Now, mm-hmm. Tom Scioli, I knew him from Godland with Joe yeah. Casey, which was uh, Jack Kirby, the tribute show. And he promises to do the versions of Transformers vs. G.I. Joe that Kirby would have done, which is interesting in its own right. But then you read it, and it's not even that. It's something completely unique and other. It's like somebody took a radical 60s artist mm-hmm. and told him, you can do whatever you want with these characters. You can interpret them, and you can use them whatever you like. Every time I read it, I'm like, IDW allowed him to... Hasbro allowed him to publish that? Doing, in one moment, the G.I. Joes attack Cybertron, and they do it using green bombs, which make the robot planet into Earth. Wow. And one of the Joes ingests one of those green bombs and has a drug trip. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And, and another thing... Every single issue is part of the ongoing series, a very large-scale thing. Again, by the third issue, the Joes are attacking Cybertron. That's by the third issue. But also, every single issue is a self-contained action story. I don't know where it's going. By the, the time the first arc, which is now ending, this comic is now where most comic would be at the end of their 30th issue, because so much wow. stuff has happened. It's just keep on going and going, and new ideas, new characters... Uh, new scenes, new plot developments, everybody's betrayed and changed sides, and a million characters have been introduced, and they keep promising to get bigger and bigger, and I'm like, wow. And it's fantastic. If I were a kid reading that, I would be even more blown away, mm. and it makes me feel like a kid reading comics for the first time. I haven't read it, but you, you are convincing me to take a look at the first trade, because, I mean, I did grow up with the cartoon... Well, both versions of the cartoons, but I was never huge fans of them. And really, when you look at their legacy today, there's Michael Bay, there's the G.I. Joe films. It's not exactly interesting. But this particular combination seems to be bearing some very intriguing fruit. I will take a look at it. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about it. That would be No promises. No, no promises, promises, but that would be an interesting thing. <laughs> my, my pick for Best New Ongoing and I don't know how this happened, is Grayson. Tim Seeley, Tom King, and, if I'm not mistaken, the artist is Mikhail Janine. And by all rights, that book should have been crap. Wow, listen. By all rights. Listen, listen. Okay, so, I've always liked the concept of Dick Grayson more than the execution, right? The idea that he's the Robin who grows up, breaks away, but on some level, it's not just that he'll never have a normal life, that he'll always put on the costume, but... The idea that he's doomed to become Batman someday. That he cannot get away from it. And in fact, I think it's already happened like twice, right? There was Nightfall. Well, DC reboots, we don't know. DC reboots, whatever. But, but it's Nightfall like, was Azrael, right? I think it was Azrael and then Nightwing kicked yeah. him out and, okay. and became Batman. And then there was this whole thing with Damien. Who uh, cares? More, more recently, which nobody cares about. <laughs> so it is this idea of like the sidekick character who does not want to become the main guy. He's not like Wally West who idolized Barry Allen and wanted to become him and then became 
the Flash. Here it's like, he wants to do anything other than become Batman, and he can't help going back to it. And here Tim Seeley manages to do something with Dick Grayson that I never thought would be possible. Make him fun. It's this spy thriller, high-tech, science fiction interpretation of Nightwing infiltrating Spiral and trying to stop them from, well, it's not entirely clear because Grayson is a spinoff of a previous title. And again, DC doesn't have recap pages, so I don't really know what the premise is. Nor should you care. (laughs) It's DC's universe version of Zero. It is, and it works really well. There are all of these little decisions that Seeley makes that when I look at them, I'm like, I can see why you did that, and I like it. For example, the idea of pitting him against the Midnighter. From the Authority. From the Authority. And well, now I think it's from Stormwatch. Wh- whatever. Authority. Combining the Authority into the DC Universe was a horrible idea yeah, it did not in general, but anymore. this choice yeah. justifies it. Pitting him against... The bargain basement Batman. Batman. Bargain basement Batman. Bargain ba- not just Who bargain doesn't basement. know he's a bargain basement Batman. And who is flirting with him in the manner of Bond girls. <laughs> I thought that was hysterically funny because they're on the train and they're having this banter and I'm like, isn't this how James Bond usually talks? Because Midnighter keeps calling him pretty because of course Midnighter's gay and there's that whole history to the character. And I'm just reading it and Helena Bertel... Ooh. Bertolini, Bertinelli, Bertinelli, the Huntress. Well, who used to be the Huntress is also in this, and he is based in uh, Hadrian's School for Girls, where basically women are being trained to become assassins. Yeah, from the Morrison's uh, Batman Inks. I wouldn't know. Okay. Again, that's another thing that I don't know, but that the series communicates well enough. They're sexualizing Dick Grayson in a way that's common for female superheroes, but nobody comments on it. And I found that really funny. I think in the third issue, you have the scene where, like, the students are gathered around and, like, they've taken secret photographs of, like, the hot new tennis teacher or whatever he is. And they decide to, like, break into his room and go on a manti raid. I laughed my ass off. It's not what you expect from a character adjacent to the Bat family. And right. again, the book was by all rights supposed to be a disaster. Right. It, if the, it had been the, any the other fin- writer. The, yeah, the finishing issues of Nightwing were awful. Was that before the reboot? Or no, no, no. The New the, 52. And by the same creative team. It was a bad, bad uh, issue. I didn't go that and far. And the whole publicity for the book, dick, you know, DC were doing the 13-year-old jokes. There's actually a gag in the book where, like, he's flirting with one of the other agents. Like, the title page is basically her with her head thrown back, screaming dick. And Tom King, who's a new writer, <laughs> never heard of him. Team Silly, who did okay stuff with Hackslash, but never blown me away. And then this thing comes on, and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it's very good. Yeah. And, and every issue is like, I'm fighting against myself. I should hate this. I don't. Yeah, it's I don't. engaging. There are mysteries there that get you involved. There are a few things that concern me in terms of, because this is a DC series, I can't shake the fear that it's going to head into a crossover and never come back. And they made it through unscathed from that issue three. What was it? Futures and yeah, yeah. and and Zen. and they made it unscathed through that one. So you know they're guess, okay. But some I, people can roll with the punches. I hope so. I some mean, people this can figure really, David their way out of it. This is really a series that should be left to its own devices because it's really mm. good. And I did not expect to ever say that about a series starring Dick Grayson. <laughs> so, so our next award is the Vern Troyer Award for the best new miniseries of 2014. 
And I'm choosing one we already talked about, so I won't elaborate a lot. Judge Red Mega City 2 by Ulysses Farinas and Douglas Walk from IDW again. And we talk about it. You didn't really like it. I, I got what you were saying about yeah. it. My personal reaction to that as a reader was just, you know, I've been so inundated with Judge Dredd stories that it's I'm hard not, for me to... I'm not. And okay. it's fun. It gives uh, Ulysses Farinas a chance to mm. draw the hell out of whatever he wants. Giant crabs, giant robots, giant cities, giant anythings and everythings. Yeah, the art makes the series here. And Douglas Walt making sure that every issue is a self-contained mystery. Again, every issue should be a thing to itself. Mm-hmm. That should be a law drilled into the head <laughs> of every single writer in the industry. You don't watch a TV episode that doesn't have anything happen, happen through it and say, well, it was okay as part of a general season. No! Every episode should be fun. Likewise, every issue should be interesting. Yeah. And in Judge Dredd Mega City 2, every issue was interesting. Plus, we got a lot of great Comedy gags and a lot of great action and Mexican wrestler judge. <laughs> that was the best part of this miniseries. I've and been uh, back. and we we're not doing the best covers, but the best covers of the year by yeah. far. Oh yeah, Farina had some. Yeah, Walk's script is good for that book, but I think like when you think about Mega City Two as a miniseries, the thing that will stay in your mind afterwards is the artwork. Yeah, it's just absolutely stunning. My pick. Came as a surprise to me as well for Best New Miniseries. I'm going with Edge of Spider-Verse. That is a surprise. That is a surprise. Now that I'm looking at all of these things together, the trend that I'm picking up on is that this was really the year that I gravitated towards more lighthearted and classic interpretations of superheroes than you typically find in the mainstream. Which, sidebar, may also explain why I'm enjoying The Flash so much more than I ever did Arrow on the CW. They're both television series within the same network, same caliber of actors, same level of writing, more or less, but The Flash is much more energetic and positive. And similarly, Edge of Spider-Verse... Now, I didn't even read the main Spider-Verse event. I did not bother with it. This was a five-issue miniseries written by various writers and artists. And I love alternate universes. They're one of my favorite themes in fiction in general. And these were basically five one-shots that we're looking at five different versions of what the Spider-Man legend would look like, you know, in alternate worlds. The breakout character obviously being... Spider-Gwen. Spider-Gwen, right? Jason Hunter, who immediately left into her own That's whatever it was, Stacy can. Cannot wait to read that ongoing. But also, I mean, there were other interesting characters, too. There was a return to Spider-Man noir, who was a decent concept. There's the anime guy, right, Aaron, with his army. There's that really, really creepy Spider-Monster guy. The eggs coming out of the bite. I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about it. And of course, the Asian schoolgirl version, which I thought was hilarious. See, you and should read Spider Verse if for nothing else for the one issue where they're doing the Spider Man newspaper strip gag. I don't want to though. Spider Verse. Oh, look, look, look. Morlan attacks Spider Man. Yeah. And the whole page turns into a Spider Man uh, newspaper strip. And every single strip is Spider-Man reminding him what happened throughout the last strip. And more like, why aren't we moving forward? Why yeah. do you keep telling me things I already know? I get that. It's just Moreland, right? Yeah. So, you know, you can read these five issues. They stand on their own. Some of their stories are interrupted by events of Spider-Verse. Because Moreland shows up, and this happens, and that. And it's like, I know that I should be invested in the main series, but I really don't feel any compulsion to find out what's the deal with Moreland. 
I was over Moreland a long time ago. Well, I, I didn't care about Moreland when he was written by Who JMS. Did? Well, a lot of people, apparently. No. Moreland was... I cannot believe that Moreland was ever popular. JMS run is still popular for some god-awful God reason. Uh, but I like what Dan Slott doing with him. And Dan Slott can take... Uh, bad concepts from the Marvel Universe and make them work? It depends who you ask. That does really lead me to sort of like the overall conclusion that my interest in these characters is directly proportionate to my lessening interest in Peter Parker. Like, even Miles Morales, Miguel O'Hara, and all of these like alternate Spider-Men that are running around are really interesting and self-contained, and I find them more... Worthy of exploration than Peter Parker, because how much can you possibly keep? So doing that's their superpower. They have the proportional interest of a Spider-Man. <laughs> I guess I was bitten by a Spider-Man comic, and now I have the proportional Listen, interest. How of... often can you say with Marvel? Yeah. I read a miniseries that ties into a crossover. Didn't read the crossover, and I still walked away happy with a complete story. How often can you say that? Really, it doesn't happen very often. Fine. <laughs> I think it's time for the Ploy Awards. Yes. Yes. The must-be-mentioned Ploy Awards for Best Animal. Yes. Best Performance by an Animal. Comic. (laughs) And uh, the Smogies Award are partly named after Chu, the Smorgasbord edition, which gave a name, as far as I'm concerned, to the whole podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give the play award for the one you're all expecting. It's the sad goat from Thor number one. Sad goat. And in Thor number one, which we reviewed, which was an okay issue, interesting issue, there was a single page in which (laughs) Thor appeared riding upon a goat in the middle of the ocean, wielding a giant axe. And that's a panel of the year right there, but it was the face of that goat. Which was a sort of a sad, panicky look of, as you said it at the time, why am I under the sea fighting giants with a Viking on my back wielding an axe? It was brilliant. Thor in mythology had goats, and I assume in older comics we saw his goats, but I want that goat to be in the Pet Avengers. <laughs> it's to be the Eeyore of the Pet Avengers. <laughs> Like everybody's, we have to, we have to stop. I don't know the invasion of the bird people. I'm like, Uh, I tried, I tried to stop an invasion, was didn't work. (laughs) Great, more frost giants for everyone. Sad goat. Now listen, you know I love sad goat. Oh yeah. I mean, I think we've all had days where we wake up and suddenly we've got us guardians on our back and we're driving us into the ocean and you know the day starts. This was almost the sad goat podcast. (laughs) It very nearly was. You know the day starts bad and it ends that way. But I need to give the Poyo Award for best performance by an animal in an ongoing in 2014 to Lying Cat. Lying saga. Lying. Lying. (laughs) Not lying. Just because, first of all, I love the design, right? It's this giant blue scary cat. Looks like Mr. Bigglesworth from Austin Powers, except bigger. And it's the way that Vaughn uses him. He can only say one word. If he detects a lie, lying. But the way that he's used, like Vaughn uses that one word the way James Gunn uses I am Groot. It means so many things at precisely the right time. I absolutely love and Lion Cat. And it's a shtick that should be very tiresome very soon. Yeah. It would but be it's like not. the. It but would, it's not. Yeah. You could have easily fallen into that trap of the annoying cat sidekick. Ew, I'm thinking of Pokemon now. What was the name of that cat? 
Meow? Team Rocket's cat, Meow. Yeah. God, I wanted to strangle that one. That one and, could actually speak, though. Yeah, and he was not better off for it. But really, Lion Cat made the year for me. But since we are also a multimedia and transmedia podcast, <laughs> we should also acknowledge the non-comics comics properties. And this is actually an award we will be giving jointly. <laughs> it is the Nicolas Cage Award for Best Adaptation. <laughs> and our pick, our joint pick here, is Captain America the Winter Soldier. Yeah. Directed yeah. by the Russo Brothers. Surprisingly directed by the Russo Brothers. Yep. I mean, let's start with the fact that when they were announced as the directors, nobody had any expectations. Because nobody knew them. Well, even the, the people guys that... who did the rest of development now yeah. directing Captain America, everybody's like, "What?" That was a very strange pick, and and like their actors pick, Marvel can choose their directors. Yeah, most and of the time. It's funny when you think about it. The skepticism that has always been applied to Marvel characters has also sometimes been applied to their directors. So you look up their credits, and you're right. The main thing that they were known for was Arrested Development, and the, your instinct is to think that's the dumbest choice possible. It's about as dumb as taking the guy from... Swingers? That's not even the worst movie he's ever been in. He's made some lousy choices. You know, Chris Evans and casting him as Captain America. Well, when you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think it became something different after The Winter Soldier. Up until The Avengers, and I think also Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World, you could get away with thinking that they were, you know, a light, slightly predictable, fun superhero saga. And The Winter Soldier did something. It surprised you. Not just that it surprised me, but it changed the way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe was perceived. And it did something that the actual Marvel Universe wouldn't have dared doing. They almost did it in Secret Warriors with Jonathan Hickman, which was part of the twist, but they didn't went all the way with it, like Captain America did. And it was a movie that dared, which was, yeah, you know, it dared in the context of superhero movie, so the enemy is still not the evil American government, it's secret Nazis. Right. But it did something. The idea of S.H.I.E.L.D., which has been the safety net throughout all the Phase 1 films, And their ongoing TV series. Which also, I mean, we should acknowledge that this movie basically saved the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., injected new life into them. The fact that they're still on (laughs) is probably attributed to the Winter Soldier. Now, Guardians of the Galaxy would probably be most people's choice because of the sheer fun factor. Well, but, but we both agree, Guardians of the Galaxy is a candy bar. No, 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 no. But my, my reasoning for choosing the Winter Soldier over Guardians of the Galaxy is because when I say best adaptation, that's precisely what I mean. It's hard to argue that Guardians of the Galaxy is a film which is a fantastic film in its own right, but to say that it directly adapts to Guardians of the Galaxy is problematic. Well, it takes a lot from the Abnett and Landing Run. True, but not... It's lighter in tone, but it takes a lot from it. And their version of Rocket Raccoon and Groot is Abnett and Lanning. For comparison's sake, when you look at Ed Brubaker's Winter Soldier storyline, which lasted a lot longer than the first trade, it was like this whole... Yeah, saga. 50-something issues. But the process of adaptation in this case is a lot cleaner, because they basically stripped away the things that didn't work. They took out the whole thing with the Cosmic Cube and the Red Skull coming back. We don't need that. It's not no. necessary. Dr. Faustus and, and all of that crap, absolutely not necessary. The weird ongoing torture of Sharon Carter, very unclear <laughs> and very unnecessary. The whole thing with Nomad, all of that out. What we do have are creative decisions that make sense. For example, Brubaker, in his run, 
tried to do a lot in order to sort of retroactively mature Bucky and make him like this teenage assassin behind the lines during World War II, it still doesn't manage to shake that sense that Bucky was basically wartime Robin. Whereas the film gets a lot more mileage out of the idea that they're the same age and they were best friends before the serum and da 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 So it's adaptation in the sense that, first of all, it strips out the things that are not necessary and that wouldn't work in a cinematic medium. But it also adds ideas that makes the core stronger. And I think that is something that Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't necessarily have. It's a faithful translation regarding specific characters, but the feel of Abnett and Lanning's run is very different from the feel of... Yeah, and again, Guardians of the Galaxy is very fun, but that's about it. And it suffers from the tragic Marvel movie flaw of bad villains. It's generic doomsday villain. Yeah, when you get Lee Pace, and the best you can get is that version of Ronin, there's a script problem, because Lee Pace is not a bad actor. And Captain America Winter Soldier isn't perfect. The Winter Soldier part of the Winter Soldier doesn't get enough Focus no. for my taste. And, Although, to be fair, and that the, was also what happened in the comics. And like, the cli- you want to find out yeah. what, what's going on with Bucky, and he's always like in the background. And the climax is another big action scene, which... which Well, pretty good, good action yeah. scene. Again, the action scenes were... It's the best action scenes that Marvel movies ever had. Better than the Avengers, I think, because Captain America yeah. doesn't have superpowers in the classic term, so he has to work for it, yeah. and you feel the effort. The scene in the elevator, oh, one yeah. of the best action scenes of the year, and mm-hmm. and this year we got the raid too. So you know yeah. it should have been lock, stock, and barrel all ten best action scenes are from the raid too. But no, the elevator scene, the taking down the airplane, the mm-hmm. Falcon doing his thing. Oh, the Falcon was fantastic. Like in terms of the action scenes, I think Avengers benefited greatly from the team synergy. Like, there's that one long shot sure. of all the Avengers participating in the same and fight. And the, the movie basically, the Avengers basically built f- for that shot. Yeah. And it was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. But with the Winter Soldier, you do get a much more visceral feel. Like, when he's going around in the boat at the very beginning of yeah. the movie and taking out all of these agents, like, one after the other, you really do get a sense of that's not what people typically expect from Captain America. Even in the first film, he wasn't that physical. Yeah, And here there's like a lot more emphasis on hand-to-hand combat, and it was just absolutely spectacular. Crappy villains, but Robert Redford was not bad. Who did the... Uh, what's his face? Uh, their, no, in Captain America, their version of... Uh, Arnim Zola. What's oh, his name? Uh, Toby Jones. Toby Jones. First correction, I am Swiss, not German. <laughs> he was in that movie <laughs> for like... Three minutes, and these were three glorious minutes. It was Arnim. It was the closest the Marvel Cinematic Universe could get to classic Zola with a little camera on his head. You're making that gesture, and it works. And you don't have to, but it works anyway. So awesome! Yeah, good for you. It was a great, great movie. Okay, and bad awards once again. We'll do the MC Escher Awards for uh, worst. Storytelling? Most confusing storyline. Because really, when you look at M.C. Escher, your I, first I impulse choose, is, what the hell is going I, on? I right choose here? to call it uh, most confusing storytelling because I don't have any idea what the storyline was in Intersect <laughs> number one yes. inter- by Ray Fox. And in the week that Intersect number one came out, we chose instead to review another Ray Fox series, Gotham by Midnight, yep. which we didn't like because it was too predictable and obvious. And then you read Intersect and you're like, well... He's a very different person, you know. He's got two completely different voices, which is great. 
They're both very bad. Yeah, I I can't remember ever seeing a writer that's so on the opposite sides of the spectrum. <laughs> and I've read that issue, Intersect Number One, twice. And the only way I understood sort of, kind of what was happening, not in the plot, but in the scene, was because of the narration. Like, now we're being chased. And I'm like, are you? <laughs> oh my god, he's thrown him through a window. He did? What's the window? That's the window? <laughs> And I get what they're aiming for. It's sort of a nightmarish-like landscape of everything melding into one another, very highbrow, very high-minded, but it's meaningless. It's just wash. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't get it. That's I, the thing. Not I don't get your metaphor and plot. I don't get what's happening on the page. Yeah. You, you might as well have just, you know, thrown colors at the James Pollock style. Which is pretty much what it is. I mean, these characters have dialogue, and I'm reading the dialogue, and setting aside the fact that the art doesn't make any sense, the words, trying to figure out the words, and it's like, what are you saying? I don't, I can't, are you speaking English? Is this like filtered through Google Translate or something? I don't understand. And it's not dream logic, because dream logic makes sense within its own terms. Adventure time is dream logic sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Because you can sort of follow through what's going on. This is just nonsense. I think the word is baffling. (laughs) It is baffling. And it was so bad for me that I'm kind of curious to read it when the trade comes out. To see see if, oh, if the second issue is suddenly like a stroke of genius. And I'm like, that was the thing they were doing. But on the other hand, no, not. Tom, how long have you been reading comics? You know good and damn well that if the first issue looks like that, the second issue is going to look like (laughs) that too. Come on. Okay, here we go. Controversial. Hang on. Let me get my boxing gloves out. I am granting the M.C. Escher Award for most confusing storyline to Multiversity. Ooh, that's... Oh, yeah. I am throwing it down. I am dropping the mic. You are aware that you're sitting in a room with a guy who wrote uh, Fawning, Grant Morrison is a genius that book. That is fine. We will agree to disagree on that. And you're... And I have guess. read this comic... Listen, I have read each and every Multiversity comic three times <laughs> because I know that either... Something is terribly wrong here, or maybe I'm just not getting it. Maybe I was tired. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. Maybe that... No. I started from Multiversity issue number one, or zero, or whatever, the the issue that we reviewed, and every single one-shot, and it's like, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're talking about, Morrison. I don't know. What is all this babble about universes and that I thing and the, the, what, what, leave me alone, I don't understand and I don't want to understand that's, anymore. That's our big disagreement, I'm afraid. I um, can't. I and, just and, can't. And again, I don't think Multiversity is genius. It's <laughs> far from its best work as far as I'm concerned, but I think it's comprehensible in the terms of issue per issue because... I find it completely incoherent. I, I didn't really like The Just, which was, I think, third one shot. Because, because that was the one with the... Uh, the t- super- celebrities. Yeah, celebrity superheroes. And the one before that with the pop heroes was okay, I guess. But once Pax Americana came in, I'm like, okay, I'm not judging it in terms of what he's trying to do in multiversity as a whole for now. I enjoyed Pax Americana. For, for what it yes, sure, And, and sure. the recent one, the Thunderworld, it was just a fun Shazam story. And for me, it was, what if Grant Morrison was doing all-star Shazam? But he's not doing all-star Shazam. The individual one-shots, you know, the just wasn't great. But it did have sort of it was something that, beginning, that you could middle, follow. Yeah, sure. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay. None of these one-shots is helping me to understand what the hell happened in Multiversity number one. 
this is all one storyline. Because I remember he did the same shtick in Seven Soldiers. Which where, I also like. Where you were supposed to follow the four-issue uh, miniseries because they would all inform you as to what the overall storyline was happening. And I don't get it. And at some point, like, you know, when you reach your third reading and you're still coming up, we're sorry, the number you're trying to dial is disconnected, please try again. At that point, you're like, you know what, I don't care anymore. You have failed to hook me as a reader, so to hell with this. No, thank you. Multiversity, you are needlessly confusing. Go away. Multiversity, stay. I love you. <sighs> okay. On a more positive note. On a more positive note? I'd like to present the Yo Dog Award. For most pleasant surprise of 2014, to all new Ghost Rider. For the sense of general background here, Ghost Rider is not a property that either of us, I think, associate with greatness. Well, Am I right in saying I that? I kind of like the Jason Aaron thing. How long did that run? Oh, 50 issues, I think. Was, 50 issues? No, maybe 25 or something. It was a long run. It was like just five issues or done. But, you know, whatever. Also, like the Nicolas Cage movies. We don't have to talk about that. No, we don't. It's but not his fault. Poor Ghost Rider. Is it not his fault, really? He's asking for vengeance. Nicolas Cage's recent career is the Demon Zarathos. It should be avenged. Yeah, taking anyway, vengeance upon him. So all new Ghost Rider, and in fact, when the book was launched, I didn't pick it up because, you know, I, I just assumed that Ghost Rider, it looked like how a, good could it possibly it, be? It looked like a poorly timed cash grab because it was such an obvious... Fast and the Furious ripoff because now he's driving a now car. Now he's driving a car. And it happened right. And he's Latino. And, and it happened right as the Fast and the Furious guy died, right? Yeah. Uh, what was his name? Was a, Paul Walker. Paul Walker that was died. Insane. Yeah. In a car crash. And and that month, the solicitations for the first issue coming up, and I was writing the uh, looking ahead lines for the Israeli blog Alilon, and I was like, so in the first issue of All New Ghost Rider, Paul Walker's ghost is obviously coming to hunt. Ooh. The, the ghost in this story is named Eli. If he had said his name was Paul, I'd be like, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> so Felipe Smith with Chad Moore and Val Staples on art. So I hadn't planned on picking it up. On an impulse, I picked up the first trade just because. And I really, really enjoyed it. And huh? I wasn't expecting to. That's what makes it, you know, the... the most pleasant surprises that I had this year. Because going into it, I had absolutely no reason to expect that a ghostwriter story would A, have a protagonist that isn't Grindelk. Because Robbie uh, Reyes is not Danny Blaze, is not Dan Ketch, or whatever the hell their names were. The Where third it was one always... from Venom, from Ooh, the Venom miniseries. What was it? Oh, God. What was her uh, name? Alejandra something? Yeah. I don't know. All of these characters were always emblematic of the 90s, with the chains and the leather jacket. it's weird, because it's a 70s character. And pouches, pouches everywhere. And Robbie Reyes is this character who is struggling to have a better life. His brother is disabled, and really, you know, his brother is cute, but you do sort of get that sense of, well, of course they went with the disabled brother. Isn't that cute? But... Something about it. I don't know. It's the combination of the artwork having this sort of pseudo-cartoony look that really makes it stand away from the sort of gritty and bloody uh, And see, thing. I wanted to read it because of Treadmore, the artist. He did Strange Son of the Blue Patrol. And there's a lot of that in here. There's which, like his huge muscles. And, and, yeah, and brutal, super violence. That's what he does best. So I said, oh, Ghost Rider, that's the perfect character for him. I've only read the first issue, and I wasn't really done with it. For me, it was like, so generically introduced the cast, but if you're saying it gets... It the, does. The, it well, stands, first of all, the action quota goes a, up. 
Yeah, maybe it's better as an arc. You know, it is. I remember the first issue ends with his... He's turning into Ghost Rider or something. Right. In fact, one of the interesting things about this book is that it's not Ghost Rider in the traditional sense. The villain here is Mr. Hyde. Now, Mr. Hyde has faced Ghost Rider before, so when they first fight, Mr. Hyde is like, it's you again, and Robbie has no idea what he's talking about. Hmm. The spirit that he's interacting with, we don't know anything about it yet, but it's implied to not be Zarathos, the spirit of vengeance and all of that. So Robbie Reyes is up there with Kamala Khan and other new characters. It's almost like two co- that and Miss Marvel. It's almost like yeah. they're two counter books because one is the very masculine, narratively laden, you know, action and cars, and it's Dreadmore drawing it. Right. So it's going to be... Although, we should also say that one of the big problems with the Fast and Furious as a franchise is that you don't really care about the characters. Because they're... No, I care. They're, I want they're them there all to, to jump from one no, car no, no, to the I other. No, no, I care. I want them all to die. I hate all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually... Well, I, was dra- well, I was dragged... One Fast of them already has. So I enough. was dragged to Fast and Furious 6 by a friend of mine. Oh, no. Uh, who's a Vin Diesel fan. A shirtless Vin Diesel fan. Oh, of course. Of course. And I spent the whole movie... Is there so, any other kind of... Well, there's good now, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. And I spent the whole of the movie saying, they're all criminal scum who yeah. kill people and take advantage of people and beat people up. I want them to die. They're not they're anti-heroes. All, they're just bad guys. Yeah, it's true. What I find so refreshing here is that you're right that it has a lot of the iconography of the Fast and Furious. Really, you know, the car and... Everything that happens with, with it's the, in the streets. It's in the streets, <laughs> and you have this gang. Of course, we're and, doing the we're and doing of course awful are, signs. Yeah. And of course, there are gangbangers involved because of course, of there course, are. and of course, drugs are involved, and of course, all of that is true. But the character of Robbie is not an anti-hero, is not a criminal, is not the kind of person that you would expect to find in this kind of story. It's working against type in exactly the way that G Willow Wilson works against you know the Muslim stereotype. I'm reading it and I'm just enjoying it. And I never, ever, ever thought that I would sit somewhere and say, so you all hear me say, I liked Ghost Rider. Never thought I'd say that in a million years, and I have. So that was my pleasant surprise of this Okay, year. and my pleasant surprise is Egos. We reviewed mm-hmm. the first trade by Stuart Moore and Gus Storm. And it's a surprise because Stuart Moore is one of those workhorse writers who was in the biz forever and ever. I never produced anything that, for me, was very memorable. We, whenever we talk about him, it's always, which more are we talking <laughs> yeah, about? It's a, a poor guy, but, you know, it's like, it's not Alan Moore. No, it's and it's not, not Terry, Terry Moore. Moore. I always get him confused <laughs> with Terry Moore. Before we started recording, I'm like, so he's the guy who did Rachel Rising. No, that was Terry Moore. But isn't he the guy? No, that was David Moore. And it just turns into all of this, like, it's a moray of morass of more. You know, not bad, but never particularly memorable. And Gus Storms is... As new as new names can be, just plucked out of this art school or whatever. And it's such a surprise to see such a well-crafted space opera superhero thing. Egos is basically what, not X-Men, Legion of Superheroes should be. And it does the end of the issue twist thing better than just about any other thing in the medium right now. The last page. Every issue should end with a last page. It should make you... Want to grab the next one? The first issue of Egos has two of them, and this, you know, one after another, which is just this is mess. No, this is mess, yeah. which is amazing. And you're like, well, they can't dub that, and then the reveal, which I won't spoil, even though we already talked about it, is such a brilliant series, and it was long delayed. They had their short first arc, four issues, 
and then it was gone, and you were crying and weeping. Yeah. But that, that was the reason. But that is exactly the reason that I didn't give Gus Storm Artist of the Year. I guess four issues, and then apparently he took a six month break. But they are coming back in yeah. 2015. And I agree with everything you said. This is what superheroes in a space opera format should look like. The closest comparison I can think of was, and I can't even place this in the different crises, but you remember when Mark Wade was doing Legion of Superheroes. It was a very short run. 12 issues, 15 no, issues, and then Supergirl came in. I think it was 20, in. no? It was the one okay. where Supergirl was yeah, introduced yeah. in the middle, and that's exactly when I quit. I've only read like three issues. But up until that point, it had been interesting and diverse alien cast, all of these different cultures and science fiction concepts and superpowers See, all me, mixed for, together. For me, it was like Mike Avon Omin's The Victories, but, yes. but I've read The Victories, and I'm like, it's okay. And this is started as a, I thought it would be a Victories clone, but no, it's, it's better. There's more to it than yeah. just that. Absolutely. So fantastic, fantastic. Egos, series. read it if you haven't given a shot yet. I am very happy that it's coming back. Back to negative? Back to negative. So, the Dolly Parton Award for Biggest Bust of 2014. And we're going to go multimedia again, because really this is the sort of failure that Nelson Muntz would have loved to just like, you know, ha ha! So, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Directed by the poor, maligned Mr. Rodriguez. He's not poor and he's not maligned. He's got a lot of money. People if like he him. ain't maligned after this, he should be. He survived Shark Boy and Lava Girl. He survived Shorts. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez does films the way other people change their socks. <laughs> no, it's sorry, true. He does it's true. dozens of films, so he can survive he a bad one back. because he's gonna do a, a good one. Okay. In a, and you know what? Stuff. You know what? I'm gonna be completely fair here and say that A Dame to Kill For fails because of Frank Miller. And I'm not just saying this because I like blaming Frank Miller for things, even though most things are usually his fault. But the reason that it fails, especially when you compare it to the previous film, because the first Sin City was not a failure. A Dame to Kill For is. And the reason it is, is because it is based on material that happened after Frank Miller, how can I put this diplomatically, lost his touch, lost his mind, lost his marbles, lost his sanity, lost any semblance of any kind of creative well, spirit I, at all. I, whores, 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 whores well, everywhere. See, see, I think it's not a very good movie, but I don't think it's a awful movie. It has the cool factor enough to sort of carry it through. The problem is, for me, not the bad stories, because... Since these stories are always not about the plot, it's always about the mood of the thing. It lost well, momentum. Well, no, 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 hang on, hang on, though. The first Sin City did get some mileage out of the idea that these stories that you were looking at were connected in ways that you didn't expect. That there was a thread that was going through it with Marv and with Bruce Willis' yeah, but, character. But for and, me, and but for me, it was never about the thread and the plot. For me, it was always about the setting. Uh, Roger Ebert had this great line about the first Sin City about. Every actor in that film was chosen for the archetype it represented. Yeah. And, and it's true. And the, the introduction for the first film, the brilliant opening scene with uh, every actor's name splashed with the painting from the comics, not with the yeah. character's face. And when you actually see the character on the screen played by the actor, it's the same thing. But that worked in the first film. Yeah. In the second film, film, it didn't work And as well. for me, it's not Frank Miller's fault completely. Though the story you written for that one is bad, and the Dame to Kill for the story is bad. Yeah. It's... The Since momentum he... was dead in water. That yeah. movie should have come out in 2008, in 2007, not in 2014, after we had the spirit... Sucking every chance of enjoying 
Uh, from a black and white crime hyper cool movie. If only the spirit had come out in 2014, it could have received this award. And again, you were lucky because you didn't even see the the worst Frank Miller adaptation to screen. Oh my god! Uh, 300 Rise of the Emperor is worse. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that it it's might be. long and dull, <laughs> but it's not my choice for biggest bust. Oh, so it is. Uh, my choice for biggest bust is Assault on Harkham, the mm-hmm. direct to DVD DC movie. Now, DC's direct-to-DVD line was always interesting in its choices, because they started with Superman Doomsday, which was expected, but odd. Was that the first one that yeah. came after the Tim Dini universe yeah, 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 yeah. over? The DC direct-to-DVD line was basically 70-minute animated movies uh, brought straight to DVD. Right. Most of them based on existing storylines, some of them But not. these all started airing after JLU was finished. Yeah, after the end of the, the DC end animated And then it was movie. sort of like continuity-free. Yeah. Okay. So they started with Superman Doomsday, which was odd, but Okay. Was and it the, actually Doomsday? Yeah. I haven't seen most of these. Uh, uh, not direct adaptation of the story, just Superman versus a giant monster and then rebirth thing. Okay. Then they had the New Frontier, which was odd because mm. they had to truncate the thing, oh. you know, to uh, 70 minutes. The whole and also, episode. without the art, I imagine that... No, it... no, they actually captured the style great. Oh, okay. They, 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 huh. If nothing else, these films always look great. You know, okay. they pay for top-of-the-line animation, they choose top-of-the-line voice actors to do the dubbing. Mm-hmm. But in recent two years, they've chosen all the worst choices they can make regarding storylines because they edited Flashpoint. What? Yes, they actually what? did a movie version of Flashpoint. Which Flashpoint? Is a pointless story because it's a story that only exists to jumpstart a That was the to the New 52. Yes, and they did it as a movie what? and the movie is pointless. And they did Justice League War by Hang Jeff. On, I need to. T- I need you to take me back here for a second because I'm still. No, stuck I'm, on we're it. not. I'm not on the cosmic <laughs> treadmill. I'm not taking you back in time. The Flashpoint. They did a Flashpoint movie, but then how does it end? With the new Fifty Two, he's back to his universe, and it's like something is different. The end. Oh God! And then they did oh. Jeff Jones Justice League Origins. Ugh. Yes. What? Then they did Grant Morrison's Batman and the Sun, which I was like, oh, Batman and the Sun. And they did it grim, dark, and they replaced every cool thing with Deathstroke. What and does Deathstroke have to do with anything? <laughs> nothing. Oh, they God. just love Deathstroke. Uh, so this year we've got Assault on Arkham, which is... Yeah. That one I did see. A DVD movie based uh, on the computer game, based on the comics. Now, I've never played the Assault on Arkham, uh, the Arkham Batman games, because I'm not a gamer. Nope, 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 nope. It's not based on the it's games? It's not based on the games at all. It's based on Suicide Squad. Well, it's like... Suicide Squad isn't in the game. Oh, okay, I thought it... Because the designs for Harley Quinn are based on yes. the game designs. So yes. I assume that's the vis- No, no, no. The visual designs are inspired... Not just Harley, by the way. The other yeah. characters that appear in the games... I just, I played the games. Uh, nothing to do with the movie. Okay, because as far as I understood, the games are great as, you know, games. Sure. You know, the playability is great. When I look at them design-wise, I'm like, that's horrible. That's a bad, um, bad design. That's grim, dark, 90s, bad pads, well, bad Well, it's, it's largely consistent with what's going on in the comics. I mean, Harley Quinn looks in the games the way she looks in the comics now. Although... I can't really say anything bad because they got Mark Hamill to come back for the Joker. Okay, uh, so... So... Anyway, the movie itself... Yeah. ...is just awful and stupid in a way of not just 1980s Schwarzenegger movie, 1980s (laughs) canon movies, you know, like (laughs) Cobra or something, because everybody makes the wrong choice in order to make the script go to the next fight point. Yeah. 
At one point, somebody starts shooting at the Joker in his locked room, making an obvious hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. And then all the guards guarding this massive psychopath never check up on him after that. They just let him do whatever he wants yeah, well, in I his mean, cell. It is perfect. And Amanda Waller recruits the whole team and kills one of them to make a point. Why did you even recruit him? She comes off as... This is something that I find unforgivable, by the way. She comes off as an idiot in this movie. Yeah, everybody comes off as an idiot in this Amanda movie. Amanda Waller does not come off as an idiot. That is not how it goes. If your story requires Amanda Waller to act like a moron in order for it to continue, then you need to go back to the writing board and start again. And again, it has no plot. It has no character. Only it has it violence, violence, violence. And it's... And one very bizarre sex scene. And the grim, depressing violence that's like, ugh. You're like a 13-year-old trying to appear mature to me, sir, and you're not mature. Yeah. It's the worst excesses of the new 52 sensibility. I hope that that movie is not being used as a template for the upcoming Suicide Squad film, because, wow, there could be... Well, their next movie is The Throne of Atlantis, again, a Jeff Jones-based comic. Uh Uh-huh. Paging Jason Momoa. And I'm... You have 70 years of this universe history to pick from if you're insisting on doing movies based on existing storylines. Right. Do Green Arrow, you know, Longbow Hunters, do Animal Man, do Teen Titans, the classic run. You have so much to choose from. Yeah. Why do all those recent awful storylines? And why do storylines with characters who you are transporting to live action films anyway? What's the point of doing Assault in Arkham when you have a Suicide Squad movie coming up? Why risk the repetition? What's the point? Well, because they assume nobody watches this, and hopefully they're right. Oh, God. Okay, Uh, another bad award. No, let's go a little positive, I think. Let's do something nice. Let's do the Lieutenant Worf Award for Most Honorable Mentions of 2014. These are the ones that we couldn't really fit into existing categories, but nevertheless deserve a mention, I think. Uh, You want to go first? I'd like to start with Jason Aaron's Thor. Look, I was skeptical. In some ways, I still am, because I'm bracing myself for her getting kicked out eventually. But as the series has progressed, I have to say, like, I still don't know who she is. Jason Aaron is keeping her her identity mystery. But she's fun. She's a fun character. I'm just enjoying watching her fighting Malekith and blowing up Frost Giants from the inside and throwing her hammer around and just having a fantastic, fantastic action uh, adventure with this female character who is Thor and I I'm enjoying it and I was skeptical because you know I have never really enjoyed Jason Aaron's stuff I always thought that he was too much flash and not enough substance but here he seems to be balancing it out a lot better a lot of this probably depends on who she turns out to be but I like it I really really like it Okay, I'm giving it to Boom Studios Overhaul. Mm-hmm. Now, Boom had an amazing year. Just a few of the launches this year. Lumberjanes, Paxed, The Woods, yes. Midas Flash, Capture Creatures, The Adventure Time Minis, Bravest Warrior Minis, again and again. And they have our chaos, so technically I can count another successful uh, yeah. Mouse Guard, you know, another successful Cowboy miniseries by uh, Nate Powell. Nate Coffey, sorry, not Nate Powell. And they just keep on pushing and pushing and doing stuff that I don't see from any other publisher, which is 
it's a Fit for the Whole Family comic, which is not dumbed down for children. Yes. It's a comic that I can enjoy, and then when my nephew is old enough, I can give it to him. I think that's really what distinguishes them from Image. Yeah. Because Image also has a reputation at this point, right, in, in 2014, for being the publisher where you find original concepts, where you find new things to do and new genres and things that you don't typically find in the mainstream. But what separates them from Boom is that you can usually rely on Image comics to be mature fair. I wouldn't give Saga to 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. No, you know, no. It's a, it's, or Rat Queen. I mean, listen, I think Rat Queens is phenomenal, but I wouldn't give it to a kid for obvious reasons. Definitely to teenagers and onward, but Boom absolutely does produce these materials that you can enjoy them as an adult, and I can also give them to my little cousin who's nine and really And what I think it. is, it's come up to is when you're second best... You try harder. <laughs> and, and boom. Right now, everybody in the independent market is beyond image. Yeah. Behind, not beyond. And boom is trying their best to be like, this is our thing, and we're pushing it forwards and forwards. And some of the things were completely surprised me. You know, both of those companies had their Buffy clone for this year. Image had Wayward, which we talked yes. about. And which, can I just mention, turned out to be a huge disappointment. Not you, just... For me, a, a little disappointment, but Boom had Hexed from a yes. creative thing that I didn't know, and Hexed was great. Mm-hmm. Hexed did in one issue mm-hmm. what took Wayward the whole first arc. Yeah. And I just love it. And whenever they announce a new series, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm there for that. They're also in that place where it used to be reserved just for Image, but now also with Boom, where every time there's a new previews, there's at least one number one there that makes you go, hmm. I want to see what that and is. And you know what? You know what? why I give them the push over image? It's not established creators most of the time. Yes. It's not Rick Remender doing another science fiction series. It's not uh, Ed Brubaker doing another noir series. It's not Grant Morrison doing another Grant Morrison right. series. I mean, people it's... like Grace Randolph. Uh, or Ryan North also. I mean, Noel Stevenson. But anyway, so like these are names that don't necessarily have the kind of reputation attached to them. But if you give them a chance, more often than not, you are rewarded for your faith. And I think that's that's fantastic. That's something that is unique to Boom. Their original material is just fantastic. And I think, really, I mean, you're right that the difference between them is Boom is the unknown quantity. These are writers that, they're new for the, the most The only part. thing I'd ask for Boom is pricing down the trades because, yeah... Uh, we talked about Midas Flesh. Midas Flesh comes out in two trades, fifteen bucks each, which is absurd. It's yeah, an it's an issue mini. Do it it's as a one trade. Like eight issue you know, do it uh, twenty-five bucks. Okay, it's eight issues, not twenty, but even so, yeah, two fifteen-issue trades. That's I'm sorry, that's just bad. It's ridiculous. Here is a situation where Image does trump Boom because Image tends to go with a cheaper first trade. And they bump the price up for the second trade. The idea being that if you get burned on the first book, you don't necessarily feel like an idiot. And if you enjoy it, you're and, willing to pay more and, for the next one. See, and I'm willing to sort of forgive Boom for the higher prices because they're still a rather small company. And when a small company prices up, I'm like, yeah, okay, their overheads are bigger. They I have guess, smaller print yeah. ones. It's not like Marvel. Well, that brings us to the last award of the Smorgies 2014. The Mushu Award for Dishonorable Mention of the Year. And I would like to talk about $4.99. Look, 
I realize that given economic pressure, given the realities of managing a company, given all of these factors that quite frankly don't concern me as a reader, but you know, I'm willing as a critic to, to take that into account. I can understand the notion that a comic can cost $3 for 22 pages. I'm even willing to make sort of the unpleasant, but I suppose understandable leap that you can charge $3.99 for a 22-page comic. But those I'm better even be some willing great that better 20... be some damn good comics. Yeah, but that's not okay. a $5 shake. But okay, but... so like $4... For 22 pages, and if it's a Bendis comic, then you're really only getting the one panel copy 20 times, but okay. We have started seeing a trend, and it's becoming a thing this year with DC, Marvel. I don't think Image has done it. No. but Image only does it if it has like at least 50 pages. Right. In which case, again, page length is relative to price. I'm willing to yeah. accept that argument. We have started seeing a rise of $4.99 comics. That is $5.00. For one issue. Unacceptable. And this is Mushu, right? Dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow. And even worse, no. often double shipped or weekly shipped. So yeah. if you want to read it... $20 for four issues. And the Yellow you know, Marvel Comics writers yell at you, you have to buy the issues. The issues are the way we writers survive. And that like, was Peter David, right? Yeah. Talking about all new X Factor. Oh, this book is being canceled because you guys were waiting on the trade. Excuse me, sir. The trade is now cheaper than single issues. Who the hell do you people think you are? And again, if you want us to buy the issues, make them worth for a while, and don't make me pay in advance $9 for the series. Star Wars. Yeah. Yep. And I would have really wanted to read Star Wars because Jason Aaron, which I like as a writer, John Cassidy, which I love as an artist, but no, I'm not paying $9 first month out of the gate for a thing that I don't know. You could get a Netflix account for the price of two issues of Marvel Comics. And That's 48 pages versus an account that lets you watch like hours and hours of content. And co- Are comics more expensive to create now that we have email and digital scanners and all of this stuff? They're, what are you talking about? The conspiracy-minded about? part of me is saying Marvel is literally trying to kill the direct market. They want everybody to jump on their Marvel Universe app. What, for digital comics? Yes. And but I'm the not... digital comics are priced the same. When you go on Comixology, a four ninety nine comic is a no, $4.99 but you don't, comic. Don't you have the Marvel Universe pay monthly, read whatever you like thing? I think they I do. don't know about that. I think they have something like that, because they mention it all the time on the Wait What podcast. Mm. I'm not a digital guy. So I'm digital, but I limit myself yeah. to Comixology, so, so I don't see, know what. So when I see something like this, I'm just, well, I'm not reading Marvel. There's a lot of stuff from Marvel that I want to read. I'm not reading it because I'm not made of money. It's, again, like, I'd be willing to pay like $3. Like most Marvel readers, I am not a millionaire. $4 is about as far as I'm willing to go for 22 pages. And even then, it has to be something that I know is, is good in advance, that I know is for me in advance. Otherwise, I'd feel like, like $3 would be the limit for an unknown comic. $5 for an issue? Like, have you no sense of shame of scale what the hell is wrong with you and they're just going to keep going up the obvious argument is you know there are a core of marvel zombies who will continue buying but that group is going to get smaller and smaller the more five dollar comics you produce and you know what marvel 
if you end up going back to bankruptcy because of this, which I know can't happen. They can't happen. They They own the movies. Well, Disney also. But it's like the publishing arm of that entity that is now like Disney Marvel can still be shut down if their comics stop selling. I would not shed a tear. Because you really need to like stop and, and, and think for a second. You're saying like $5 an issue. That means that in a trade that would typically like, you remember when they used to write for the trade, so it was six issues per trade. You would be paying $30 for six issues in a run that for someone like Brian Bendis takes in 50 issues just to get to the point, right? My God. I mean, how do you justify no, no, I mean, it? And even if we don't use the Bendis experience. Not even Bendis. Writers Ooh. that I like. Again, L. Axis. L. Ewing relaunching uh, Mighty Avengers as Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. Mm-hmm. I like L. Ewing. And yep. the only thing that held his original run back was not very good art. Mm-hmm. So the new launch is coming. It has good art. And oh, like, no Greg Land anymore? Yeah. All right. And, but no, because first two issues. No. Four four dollars, but double shipping on the first month. I'm like, no, 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 no. no, no. no. I'm not There's paying no. eight dollars per month. There's no justification for it with the technology that's available right now. With the fact that Disney is their bank, basically now, there is absolutely no reason in the world for the prices to keep going up, other than the fact that they know that people will pay it, and that to me is dishonorable on the highest level of dishonor. And since we're talking Marvel, I'll give it to Marvel overall. It has not been a good year for them, no. No, and it's been an okay year, comic-wise. You know, we've mentioned a lot of good series. We've talked about Miss Marvel, All-New Ghost Rider, Loki, Daredevil, Mm -hmm. Mighty Avengers, again. But the company as a whole, the prices, the never-ending crossover atmosphere that they developed, which was... I am tired of Civil War, uh, Secret War, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Wh- whatever. <laughs> a year before we even seen the first preview art. I'm sitting here now and thinking about 2014. And Tom, maybe you can help me out with this. What was the event before Original Sin? I legitimately don't remember anymore. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming out so fast, I don't even know. Original Sin didn't even end before we got access. Yeah. And it's running concurrently... With Spider-Verse, with Black Vortex, with whatever. Whatever. And, to add to that, the Marvel Crisis Response Team has provided us some real gems of foot-in-mouth syndrome. And really, when we're talking about Marvel Crisis Team, we're talking about Tom Brevard. He's not alone. It's always him, though. Tom! Not you, the other Tom. (laughs) Tom! Stop using Twitter. You don't know how it works. You're saying all the wrong things all the time. Be silent. Rick Remender, also. Have Do you not ever... compare your readers to drinking hobo piss. It will not endear you to them. Tell me, have you seen me and Tom Brevard in the same room together? <gasps> That's bless, the ending cliffhanger for next year. No. <laughs> oh, we're ending on a bad note. We should end with something positive in Veta category. Now. In in Veta... Veta... No, 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 no. Wait, I, I okay. do actually have... But uh, just to sort of expand on that, you are right that, first of all, that these crises happen. To be completely fair, DC has made its fair share of stupid the t-shirts. Yeah. Ugh. Right? But it's not just the fact that Marvel creates these crises. It's the fact that the response is always really, really bad. The no women in Marvel Writers Conference. Yeah. It's, She's not exclusive. Well, neither, neither is, is Charles any, <laughs> Neither is anybody else oh, boy. at that 
team. Charles Soule is now exclusive. Yeah. Now they have an excuse. You know what the funny thing is? G. Willow Wilson ended up going to the summit and now she's exclusive. So, whatever. It's, it doesn't fool anybody, but we should end on a positive note. Okay. So, I would like to propose the in-memoriam category for comics that were canceled in 2014. That's positive? That we will miss because they were good. So, uh, I'd like to say a fond farewell to Elektra, to Charles Soleil's uh, She-Hulk, which I did enjoy despite the weirdness. I think even slightly better than uh, Dan Slott's run, because Slott was a little too self-referential for my taste. X-Men Legacy, right, Cy Spurrier's run. I wasn't a huge fan of his take on Legion, but the fact that Didn't Legion has last year? I'm pretty sure it ended this year. Okay, I, I'm not following, so I wouldn't yeah. know. So really, uh, we did lose a few good books. But See, uh, I would like to commemorate uh, Warren Ellis's short but magnificent Moon Knight, which is mm-hmm. still ongoing, but it's not with Warren Ellis and Declan Shelby, so yeah. I couldn't care less. We didn't mention it here because it's not a miniseries, and as far as miniseries go, like I said, Transformers with the G.I. Joe takes on all comers without breaking a sweat, but six issues... One story each, Warren Ellis in his most Warren Ellis-y thing, having fun with snappy lines and violent outbursts, and the fifth issue, which was basically a long action scene showing everybody how to do a comic book action scene. Yeah. Fare thee well, Moon Knight. We know you're still being written, we just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that brings our summary of 2014 to a close. There are quite a few things we're looking forward to in 2015. Yep. But we'll get to them when they come out, if they come out. For the Smorgasbord, I am Sean Edry. I am Tom Shapira. And we wish you all a happy new year. Bon appetit.